0: Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast, produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. We engage, we explore, we ask questions. Lynn Sachs is a filmmaker and a poet. The Sheffield Doc Fest and the Museum of the Moving Image have both held retrospectives of her work, and now her films can be found on the Criterion channel. I must pause just a moment to thank the Criterion collection for pulling me through those difficult lockdown months with their international collection of classic and contemporary films curated to deepen our appreciation of the art of film. Thank you. The Criterion Channel is showcasing seven of Lynn's films, including the 1994 short, Which Way Is East? It includes Epistolary Letter to Jean Vigeau, an exploration of the French director's classic 1933 film, Zero for Conduct. Vigo helped establish poetic realism in film in the 1930s and influenced French new wave cinema of the late 50s and 60s. On October 13th, her most recent work, film about a father who, which examines Lynn's relationship with her unorthodox father, Iris X Sr., will make its streaming premiere on Criterion. Lynn, it's a pleasure to have this conversation with you around the extraordinary portrait of your father in film about a father who. As the protagonist explorer, you take us by the hand and lead us into your family, an intimate portrait, And as the narrative unfolds, it's clear the story could have led an artist, you, one sensitive to poetry and beauty, to anger, rage, disgust. We instead, with you, embrace the complexity and the psychological barriers you force us to confront our own families in a similar way, without judgment. But let's begin at the beginning. How did you become a filmmaker?
1: Well, it's interesting that you use the word poetic realism when you were describing Jean Vigo, because sometimes I think, what is it that I'm trying to do? Am I trying to experiment with reality? Am I trying to document reality? And I I hadn't really thought about the term that's used for Jean Vigo, who has been a real hero of mine, which is the, the practice of embracing reality but allowing yourself the play and the inventiveness that comes with poetry. So I think that his term and his willingness and ability to witness the world around him, but through a lens that was shaped and celebrated by someone who wanted to paint what he saw. He wanted to to be an artist in it and not strictly a person who captures that reality. So when I saw his work, when I saw the work of artists like Chantal Ackerman, or even someone like Marguerite de Ross, who was, to my mind as a young person, such a captivating author, but then I realized, oh, she was making films. So she was investing a kind of poetic sensibility in the ways that she was trying to piece together the world as she was living it and witnessing it. And I think that aspect of living is what came through in films like Film About a Father Who, that our lives cannot be extricated from our art. So let there be like a, an inner, a weave of the two.
0: So most of your films do have something to do with your life, your children, your siblings. You easily slipped into memoir in a very special way.
1: I would actually say I have a body of work that deals with family and and you use the word curating to talk about the Criterion Channel's programming of films of mine and other people's that have been streaming over the last year and we've been so grateful for that. But I love that you use the word curating because curating is, to me, is a very specific impulse. It's the idea of seeing how one or one painting bumps up and talks to the next. This one you see in a gallery and the other you see on your laptop or your television or in a theater. But that curating creates a kind of new, call it a meta cinema experience, which is the juxtaposition of elements or of films that were created at different times and with different impulses. I'm very grateful to the Criterion Channel for bringing that sensibility to the work. But I also have another, or to the project of showing eight of my films. But I also have other work that I would call film essays that look at political situations, that look at, for example, the acts of civil disobedience. I made a film called Investigation of a Flame, which looks at Daniel and Philip Berrigan, and other members of the Catonsville Nine, and they're sort of breaking down the war state that we were living in in the 1960s. So, that work is very personal to me because I'm very, I see myself as an anti war person. And so, it has the imprint of my thoughts and my beliefs, but it's not specifically about my family. But the curating at the Criterion Collection is looking at work that I've created going back to the mid-90s to just last year, all of which interweaves either a sister or a father or a child. I've never had these films show together under that conceit or theme. And so it's really interesting to see my work through the eyes of the curator, and soon it will be through the audiences who access the Criterion
0: Channel. You are a poet. I have been reading year by year poems published by Tender Buttons Press and you write in the introduction that the 50 poems in the book inspired your film Tip of My Tongue. Perhaps you can describe the timeline that structures these poems. Thank
1: you for giving me the chance to kind of articulate that because sometimes I make work that doesn't quite know what it is till it's done because I I relish the process. When I wrote this book, and which is my first book, I had a mission. And the problem was I had to be disciplined about it. So when I turned 50, I decided that I would write a poem for every single year of my life. And each poem had to investigate the intersection between something beyond my control, outside my domestic universe. It could be a rainstorm, Or it could be a war, or it could be a terrorist act, or it could be many things. How do we filter that into our consciousness? How does it enter our our interior world? So, of course, you're probably thinking, well, how would she remember what, what happened in 1965 because she was only four years old? But the thing is, you actually are pretty aware of what is the sort of sweep Of the historical space and of the political space, cultural space, you can certainly look it up, and then you can figure out who you were in that point. So I decided to commit myself to writing those poems, and and poetry has been a part of my life well before filmmaking, but I would say it was in the shadow. It it was um, part something that I do often, but I. I wasn't trying to publish a book. I wasn't doing poetry readings, but poetry finds its way, like pushes its way into almost all of my films. My love of poetry, I could say, my love of line breaks is comparable to the shift between one shot and the next, especially if you're making non-narrative films, which are kind of a form of resistance to the cause and effect that comes out of narrative film. Like this shot, would follow this shot because in time it goes that way. But in a more associative or poetic way of cutting a film, we create relationships between things that are maybe texture, about textures or about thought process. And I think poetry kind of works that way too.
0: Lynn, would you read poem 1999? I would be so honored to do that. I'm really glad
1: that you read through all the years. I'll introduce 1999 by saying that by 1999, I had two children. So it was a shift in my awareness. I saw things slightly differently than I would have 10 years before. So this poem comes from that perspective. 1999, in our front yard now, Columbine grows wild. With each bloom, I think of her, a mother too. She feeds her son, knows the fruit that makes his lips pucker, the sheet that pricks his stubbly cheek, the grade he received on his biology test, how often he hiccups drinking a Coke, which ride scares him at the amusement park, how he conjures an obscure spelling word how long he takes to shit, the moment in a day when he is most likely to be kind. I doubt he ever told her about the night his skin touched skin, or the day he skipped school, or how many guns he hid behind the broken sewing machine table that she refuses to throw away because one day she hopes to have the time to sew again.
0: I was holding the book when I read that poem and I just, I folded it. I folded my hands, just put it on my lap and tears just welled into my eyes because I was involved in projects around the shooting at Columbine. And in the many years and all the books, the commentary, the documentations that have resulted, I had never read words with such feeling about what it would have felt like to be the mother or the father of Dylan Klebold or Eric Harris. And Andrew Solomon, in the introduction to Sue Kleibold's book, which she wrote uh, 17 years later, entitled A Mother's Reckoning, writes, she found the strength to extract wisdom from her devastation. I started thinking that the Klebols should have disavowed their child, but I ended up understanding that it took more steel to deplore what had been done, yet be unflagging in their love. Which brings us to the idea of forgiveness. To forgive is to let go. It doesn't mean you must forget. Which is why, in some ways, I connected the poem to film for the father who. I will let you describe the film and your father, Ira Sachs, or Nathan Ira Richmond, the kernel of where and how it all began, perhaps.
1: I must say, Elizabeth, I, I am just daunted and, and, and excited by your ability to create these cross-references between um, my poetry writing and my filmmaking, because to me they are so much a part of the same spirit and the part of the same impulse to grapple with something that I don't understand. And I think that both of the this the poem, which is an address to the experience of being a mother and broader than being a mother it is an investigation of what it is to love and that was something that i was trying to find in film about a father who but if you had told me that that was something i was trying to do i would have said oh that's hokey or oh that's that's not something you're going to be capable of articulating don't give yourself that assignment but I think that the notion of forgiveness not being a part of forgetting or amnesia or forced amnesia or like a self-conscious amnesia, I think all of us are capable of trying to forget. And we don't really want to. I, actually, forgetting is a punishment. Forgetting is, is, a, is an erasure of who we are and of what we've lived. And so, like most of us fear forgiving because it's part of growing old or part of a mental decline. But then there's this other side that says, we want to forget and we want to move on. And But moving on means maturing, really. So when I was coming to a point of trying to complete film about a father who, and I'd made, you know, maybe 10 versions that were all about forgiveness and then I made another 10 versions as you can do on a, a digital editing platform that were all about rage. And then I said, well, maybe I should give myself the assignment of, of, of embracing both of those emotions, which is credit to you what I think the woman, the mother of one of the boys who killed his peers, both of them did it, peers at Columbine High School she had to realize that parental love comes with complications. And in order for her to continue to live, she had to accept both of those emotional positions. And that allows for the the work to be nuanced and revealing. And it's interesting that Andrew Solomon wrote the introduction to that book and recognized the stature of it because I know he's written about parent-child relationships and I know he wrote the book, Far From the Tree. Yeah, and that he was not thinking about this legacy per se, but about the departure from the legacy, that a child can recognize his or her or their difference from a parent and that they've been imprinted by the parent, but also have to find their own identity. And I think that was something that was, important to me in the film.
0: I think the film as metaphor, which is how I was looking at it, and I mentioned that at the beginning, that families can look at it as how do they understand, forgive their own families, particularly in the place we find ourselves where we have tribes. <laughs> you know, we, we have divisions in families due to politics and, and other things that have come about recently. And so you are showing us how to look at this in a way that is not angry.
1: I appreciate your saying that. It also makes me think that there is a tendency in reality-based films or documentary films or nonfiction films, whatever you call them, to think of what we're doing as a window into another life that is different from ours. So the window opens and you, the measure of success, set, success is that cliche suspension of disbelief and the suspension of awareness of who you are. But if you were to bring in a more, I guess I would say Brechtian awareness, that it's exactly what you say, that, you, that my intention is to suggest that there are fissures in my story, that it is not a complete story in which you get lost, but the fissures are fissures back to your reality and back to your struggles or your you know you could say your intellectual interpretations of your own existence within a family structure it's sort of like well that's the anthropology of Lynn's family how does that reflect upon my family culture and like in the film i talk about the grammar like every family has its own grammar we we don't just all speak english or french or chinese we speak the language of our our most intimate family members. And part of that has to do with the grammar of recognizing authority, the grammar of recognizing secrets. You know, how, I mean, most families have secrets, even if you don't call them secrets. It's what goes unsaid. And that's part of our like
0: linguistic structure. Yeah, I, I love that part in the film. And, and it's fairly near the beginning. When you talk about grammar, you're sitting on a bed or a couch, and you say it grammar was important for you because you knew what was right. Mm-hmm. You know, you knew that there were rules that that made sense that could be followed. and And I thought of that. i I think I watched the film before I read the book of poetry when you'd use the timeline. And I thought, there's Lynn again, setting up a structure, setting up a grid within, you know, taking these very abstract ideas, but putting them into something that is very logical. And there's no ambiguity. That actually makes me think, I'm the daughter of my father, who was a,
1: like, full of mystery and adventure and risk-taking and rule-breaking and all of that. But then I'm also the daughter of my mother, who was a sociologist, who liked to study things like how does how does race work? How do families work? How do we create systems in all different situations in which we live? So one of the things I was trying to explore in film about a father who was the system of grammar and communication and when it fails or that kind of thing, but I was also trying to understand the system of what we have tend to call like a family tree. And so in the credits of the film, I tried to create this actually a matrix where um, a family tree also looked like sentence diagram. And there was a, and it's also, I guess, like a metaphor for these modes of association between human beings, which allows us to function verbally and non-verbally. But in my case, I think my father pushed us to break down the nuclear family, break down the traditional family trees where you have these you have a father and mother, and then you have the lineage that comes right out of it. In my life, you have a father and then six different mothers.
0: <laughs> you end the film. I love the ending when you say, this is a reckoning of our asymmetry. The cadence of our life had no balance, no scale, no structure, no milestones. A story I share with my nine brothers and sisters. And then there's an interview with so nine siblings from how many mothers and different ages and... Yeah,
1: I feel like I never really counted till I had to count to make this movie, but there were, my father had nine children, so including me, and then there were six different mothers. And I didn't really understand that at all till about 2016, I would say, which is a really like a, a shame and it is a point of... Of frustration to realize that I had two adult sisters and I didn't know them, and that they had not lived as comfortable a life as I had. And I felt really, I felt bitter about that. And I think they, I know they did too. Um, And the film created a context by which we know each other, and actually, all of us know our father better, even as he's grown old maybe, maybe, maybe it facilitated some kind of flow that and intimacy that might not have been possible, but I, I wouldn't give my film credit for it, but it did bring us all into the same room.
0: How did it feel? I think that the one moment that was a little sad was Ashley speaking about the fact that she had lived a life mm-hmm. uh, where she struggled. You know, there were moments yeah. when they didn't have that much food and, you know, she, it, and and I would think, but she's with all of you and, most of you have been very successful and, and, and lived, whatever the circumstances, a good life.
1: Yeah, that sister's, her name is actually Beth. But okay. there's so many, no, I don't know how you would, I mean, it's hard to keep track. The Ashley, was. I'm, this is a really hard thing to say about, but my father ended up dating my hidden sister's best friend. So yeah. Ashley was her name. And so when that became evident to us, it was a point of infuriation, my, quote, full sister and brother. And there was just one, there was kind of like one revelation after another. And it, it's an it's a, it's a opportunity for us to think about the ways that people com- compartmentalize their lives, which I actually think is a bit harder to do now that everyone's documenting everybody else. So if you think about the fact that in the 80s, 70s and 80s, my father had really, he had multiple names, we now know from the film, but he had multiple places of being who he wanted to be. It was like he had 10 different stages and he would be one person and one responsible, fairly responsible dad in one place and then he'd be more like a playboy in another place. And those worlds didn't intersect and I think it's really hard to imagine how that would be in 2021. Because if you are in three different places and pretending to be three different people these days, someone's going to observe you with just their cell phone. And so that notion of 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 kind of becoming a different character depending on which theater we're in is is hard to believe, like hard to fathom today. But that's kind of that is what my father did. And so I had a sister who was actually the daughter of his former secretary, and we didn't know anything about her. And she was, she's now almost 40, and it, it just truly breaks my heart that I didn't know her until five years ago. But now we all see each other every Sunday on Zoom.
0: <laughs> and how have they all responded? Do they mind the film? Or are they embracing the fact that their story is now being told? They actually, I, I've
1: tried to show each of my siblings the film when I was present with them. So some of them came to the premiere, which was at Slam Dance last year in uh, Park City, in a theater. Remember that? and then then it was here in New York City, and my father came. It was at the Museum of Modern Art at their documentary Fortnite. It has been on in virtual cinemas and it's shown actually quite a bit in Europe. And one of my sisters hasn't seen it yet, but I've given her many opportunities, but she's quite self-conscious about how she would be see herself on screen. So I'm waiting for that moment and I'll be in Memphis, which is where I'm from and where she lives in November. So I'm going to go over to her house and beg her to watch it with me. And I think she probably will feel pretty comfortable about it. But I think that my siblings and my father feel like the film allows for conversations around family in general and for a kind of dismissal of the notion of there being the perfect family or there being the the family that is successful, meaning stays together. Like we, <laughs> that that isn't necessarily a, uh, a register for an accomplishment because sometimes families stay together and there's so much pain. We had our own pain, but we also have found forgiveness. It's not complete forgiveness, though. I have to say, it's not amnesia because everybody holds a kernel of of like that of of the anguish that they felt at certain points. We all do. We all do.
0: And and the film recognizes that. But it is at the end; it's a love story to your father, yeah. And two, embracing this complicated life that he led with his mother, which was also a very important factor, and with the many women in his in his life. We're using music for this conversation that is written by a man that you work with, what Stephen Vitelliel. Can you speak about working with him or his music? Sure.
1: Um, That is uh, like such a gift. Stephen Vitiello is an extremely accomplished sound artist. He's had enormous recognition. He has installations at at museums, long-term permanent installations. And occasionally he works on films because he's pretty busy with his own artwork. And so I wrote him in two thousand. Twelve, And I said, I was finishing a film called Your Day is My Night, and I wanted to work with what people call sound effects, but to use those sound effects as music. And he said, well, we could work together, even though I live in Virginia and you live in New York. So we started this long-term collaboration of, of my sending sounds to him or images, and then he will create... Music responses, and then sometimes he sends me music responses first, and my images have to rise to the occasion. But they're definitely not the kinds of sounds that that would be relegated to what in conventional filmmaking is called the music track, right? Because they use voice, they use sounds from the space. Like, for example, I would take sounds of from old VHS tapes. That like, wasn't very like what you'd call very good fidelity, as I used to say, or, and, but it had a texture of just people being in a living room, like celebrating a holiday, but you couldn't even pick up on the sounds, and that was all the, for the better, because it created this uh, oral texture that was very specific to a time period and a group of people spending time together, being together. And being and and also maybe articulating the tensions and the love at the same time.
0: So, what's next for Lynn Sachs? What are you working on, Lynn?
1: Oh well, thanks for asking that. I'm working on a few different things. I made the the film The Washing Society, which is part of the Criterion Channel's streaming of my work. And the Washing Society actually started out as a live performance that we did all over New York City in laundromats. And it was called Every Fold Matters. Then it became the Washing Society, which is a hybrid film using dance and music, actually, and documentary interviews about the, the service aspect of washing and what it is to live in a city and the, the relationships that we have that people who do work for other people, and we've thought, especially in the service industry, we've thought a lot about that during the pandemic, who's doing labor for whom. That film is is actually my kind of celebration of of New York life and a part of New York life that people might not be paying as much attention to as I think they could. But now we're going to make, I have a collaborator on that. Her name is Lizzie Olesker. She's a playwright. And we're making a book called Handbook, a manual. So it's a celebration of things that we do with our hands in the city, but also of all the different people who worked on that film. So I have testimonies or written work by laundry workers. I have people who are laundry worker activists, but I also have a whole section by a brilliant feminist historian named Sylvia Federici. So it's a real uh, combination of, of discourses um, and then another thing I'm working on is a film that comes out of the hundreds and hundreds of business cards I've collected in my life. And so I have probably 500 cards and that project or film, it's going to be an essay film, is called Every Contact Leaves a Trace. So I'm interested in the ways that other people's lives have kind of come through and passed me by and my sort of like ability to Imagine what might've happened to those people to even wonder forensically if something of them is left on the card. And so I'm using the card as a, the cards, hundreds of them, as a spinoff to think about somebody who worked in a hardware store I might've met or a Chinese activist I might've met in China or a doctor's appointment and all the ways that those lives left an imprint on my understanding of the world.
0: Lynn, this has been such an interesting conversation. I, I just think that I can't thank you enough for your film about your father. It's, just, it's really quite extraordinary. So I hope we will have in the episode notes a little more information about where to find it and how to download it if you aren't able to necessarily see it on Criterion. So thank you, Lynn.
1: Thank you, Elizabeth, very much.
0: If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.